The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we say amen to those words that we just sang. Um, it is not possible, it is not within our ability to cling to you. We can be deceived and deluded that, to that. We can, we can think, we can be deceived into thinking that we can cling to you, but then death comes and we realize that we can't. And how tragic, how utterly tragic it is for anyone to only discover that at that moment. Death is a reality for us right now. We need life. We need life, and we need to see that you are the only giver of life. That, that is so simple, and everyone here, I, th I think, would probably say yes, amen to that, and yet we will hear a sermon here and we will leave here, and we will so easily drift back into the world, into creating a life for ourselves with our own hands. So, we need you now to come and take this simple truth and cause it to, as your word says, to dwell richly in us to sit deeply within us and to produce something different. So, we are going to talk about a passage that may be very familiar to many of us, and uh, it, would be, it would be tragic if anyone left here better informed and yet not capable of grabbing hold of the only way in which life is found. So I pray, pray that you would come with your spirit and be, be yourself with us. Be so incredibly generous. Please pour out your spirit here. Please fill me with your spirit. I'm just a man. I'm just some guy that you have called here now to preach your word, but, but we are here for you. Not, not, not like you are our employer and we're here to punch our religious time card, but, but we are here for you. We need you. 
So please give us you now, we pray. And I will look for you even as I speak. I hope in you. You are our hope. Please come, we pray. Amen. This morning we again turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 4. First book of the Bible, Genesis 4. As Bob said last week, we considered Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve were meant to live forever with God, reigning over His kingdom with Him forever, clothed in royal glory. But in Genesis 3, a rival kingdom enters a usurper, Satan. He deceives Eve through doubts and lies. Did God really say? God's all bluster. You won't die. God's holding out on you. He's not actually as kind as he says he is. Here, eat the fruit. You can be like God without God. God responds just as Satan said he would not. He is stern. He expels them from the garden and places the curse of death upon them and us. But he is also kind. He, he clothes them, not with royal clothes of glory, but better than leaves. And he makes them a new promise that, that an offspring of Eve would come and crush the head of Satan, that he would crush this kingdom, and that he would bring a new kingdom, the kingdom of life. Eve would become the mother of all the living. So she becomes pregnant, and she's thinking about this promise when she names Cain in confidence in this promise. She, she believes she is getting, getting that offspring that will either crush Satan or bring the offspring who will. But the kingdom of Satan is enlarging, it's advancing. Cain is proud about himself, and he's cynical towards God. He buys the lie. If he is to be like God, he'll need to do it himself. So he brings an arrogant sacrifice before God, which God does not accept. God sees the heart. God accepts his brother Abel's sacrifice, however, and Cain becomes, as Bob said, downcast and angry in his pride. And at that moment, God gives Cain a, a poignant warning. Be careful, Cain. You think that Abel's the vulnerable one here, but he's not. You are. You're about to kill him in just a little while, but you're the vulnerable one. He's secure because he's walking with me in faith. But you're teetering. You're, you're wobbling between two kingdoms. Be careful, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, to possess you, to have you. And when it has you, then you have no hope. You will lose yourself. If you do not turn and trust me, you will lose yourself. But Cain can't be talked out of it. He kills his brother, and he responds defiantly to God in the famous words, am I my brother's keeper? God responds again, just as Satan said he would not, with curse. The ground will no longer yield fruit for you, Cain. You'll be a wanderer. 
But instead of turning back to God, Cain only complains, this is too much for me. Wherever I go, people will seek to kill me. So again, God responds, just as Satan said he would not, with kindness, giving Cain a mark to protect him. God's kindness was meant to lead Cain back to him, but Cain is dead set on seeking reward and life through independence on his own works, away from the presence of God, east of Eden. The rest of the chapter describes for us the line of Cain, the family of Cain. The rival kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the world, advances onward through Cain. But in the encroaching darkness, a light shines, a way forward, a way to life. As we read the text, we're meant to, meant to think realistically about our world, about ourselves, about death. We're meant to think about what we really love and about which kingdom we're really loyal to. But then we're meant to turn and, and orient ourselves to the, to the only way, the, the only path through which real life is found. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter who we look like in the story. So I'm going to read in chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, I'm going to read all the way through chapter 5, verse uh, 22. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the other, the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all of the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The word of the Lord. The important points of the story are marked by the repeated names. I suspect you, you picked them out. Cain has a son, verse 17, named Enoch. From Enoch, the line leads to Lamech. So, is, so does Seth's line, starting in verse 25. A different Enoch come from, comes from Seth, which then leads to a different Lamech. So, verse 17, Cain names his son Enoch, which means to initiate. He's marking the start of his newfound independence east of Eden. He even names his first settlement by the same name. Then after several generations, Lamech is born. Lamech produces three sons of note. Verse 20, Jabal masters cattle production. Jubal masters or pioneers string and wind music, and Tubal Cain learns the craft of forging metal into useful instruments. They are the father of all who would come after them in these important vocations. But as much as the offspring of Cain can innovate and can command their external world, they cannot control themselves. Lamech, verse 19, attempts to improve on God's design for marriage by marrying not one, but two women. We only need to 
keep reading Genesis or look around at our own world to see how seeking to improve on marriage turns out. And the technology of metalworking devolves into making, of course, weapons. This is probably behind Lamech's arrogant boast in verse 23 and 24. He brags to his wives that he can kill and does kill at will. In fact, he's, he's out looking for trouble just to show that he can do it. If God protected Cain with a sevenfold verse, verse 24, well, I'm so powerful, I must have a 77-fold curse protecting me. I don't serve God, God serves me. In fact, I'm like God without God. You can see how sin has, has taken its root, how the lion of Cain has descended further and further and further into arrogance. Lamech in his boasting is more animal than human. The image of God has been scarred, defaced. And then silence regarding the line of Cain. Not another word in the rest of the story about Cain and his line. Not a word. The shrill drumbeat of pride stops. When the line of humanity is restated in chapter 5, Cain's line is conspicuously absent. With all of its advancements, with all of its achievements, in the end, Cain's line is irrelevant to the story. The family of Cain is a picture of the world, prosperous, independent of God, technically advanced, and corrupt. We can innovate, we can command the natural world, but we can't control ourselves. We've never had more, and we have never felt more cynical, more empty, more depressed. If you look at the statistics since World War II, every succeeding generation has doubled the number of people who say that they're depressed, hopeless, dark. The story of Cain's family is the story of our world. But God's kingdom breaks in, quietly at first. Verse 25, Adam and Eve have another child named Seth. They believe the promise of God. The, the, the name Seth means appointed. Seth is the appointed one who replaces Abel as the faithful son. Seth bears a son. And his name, Enosh, simply means man. It just means man. <laughs> it's, a, it's a subtle reminder that we, mankind, we, we men, men and women, are just men. We, we're just mankind. We're just made of dust. We are frail, fragile, in need. So then it's, it's no wonder then that it's right at this point that humanity finally begins to call upon the name of the Lord in dependence. The writer then restates the lineage of Adam in chapter 5, stressing the image of God. To be human is to be more like God not less like God. 
The line of Cain was becoming less human with each generation. So, so God raises up a new line of men and women to restore that image of humanity, the image of God in the world. There's a new drumbeat. But as, as I was emphasizing, as I was reading it, it is, however, a mournful drumbeat, the drumbeat of death. One by one, we read, he lived, he bore children, and he died, and he died, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he, except for the other Enoch, verse 24. So we must see here, we are meant to see in this, in this mournful drumbeat the awful effects of sin. Sin is rebellion against God, and it always ends in death. Or does it? It doesn't have to be. That's the point. It's not a foregone conclusion of nature. Enoch walked with God, it says, and because he walked with God, God took him. He escaped death. From Enoch, the line runs to another Lamech. This Lamech is not cynical, but he is hopeful. He is not materialistic like the first Lamech. He sees that there is a deep connection between the physical world and the spiritual world. I get this from verse 29. The, the, the world he sees is the way it is, not primarily because of man's innovation or lack of innovation, but because of God, because of God's curse upon the natural world and because of his mercy. What we really need, Lamech sees, is for God to deliver us from this curse. And, and I think it's my son, Noah. He'll give us rest from the curse. And then the drumbeat stops with this Lamech, not with irrelevance, not with silence, but with an offspring that will deliver this family from the coming judgment, the flood of God's wrath that is right around the corner. Two families, two kingdoms. The trajectory of one family is eternal, futile irrelevance. The trajectory of the other is to deliverance to life. The text before us should cause us to think, again, more realistically about our world. Then it should move us to, to pursue life where it is truly found. So the question before us today is whether we will see and, and value that which is actually able to give us life. The big point today is this. What is done by self is irrelevant for life. What is done by self is irrelevant for life. The reward of life is gained only by faith. The reward of life is gained only by faith. So I want to break this down into, into two points. The first one is this thinking first about Cain's family and then the line of Seth. First point is this. Prosperous life lived independent from God is irrelevant for finding lasting reward. Prosperous life lived independent from God is irrelevant for finding lasting reward. Again, the, the, the world is not all bad. The, the text here is not exactly trashing 
all the kingdom of the world. You know, when we, when we pray for our daily bread, God says yes to your prayer through Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain, through a farmer, through a baker, through a truck driver, through a grocer, all of whom may be pursuing a life completely independent of God. We are indebted to all of them. Most vocations are, are honorable and good, and they are the way that God brings good into the world. Thank God for bakers and policemen and bankers and scientists and doctors and the, the, the two cleaning people that speak another language who, who come in here on, at 6 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We are indebted to them. So the, the writer of Genesis is not out to paint Cain's line as, as all bad. Special note is made of the contribution to the world made by these three sons. If, if you go out for a fine steak meal and then go to the Salt Lake Symphony and then drive home in your car, you are indebted to these three guys. But can the things around us, our inventions, our scientific advances in medicine and electronics and physics, can any of them actually give us life? Can any of them actually triumph over cursed death? Can any of them supersede the sovereign and ancient degree of a, of a just and holy, holy, holy God? Each of us hopes for a, a good long life, but, but even then, we are all destined, we're all destined for life to be interrupted by death. And you say, well, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't even want to live forever. I don't like this place, actually. Well, you were never meant to live in, this, in, this, in a decaying, corrupt world. You were meant to live forever with God clothed in His royal glory. That's what you were made for. That is your normal. This is not normal. Facing death is, is in no way whatever normal. We don't, we don't talk much about death in our culture. You can... Now, you, you can talk graphically about sex anywhere, anytime, but death, that's the unmentionable subject because our world doesn't have an answer to it. But we need to face it. We need to think courageously and clearly about it. We are temporary. We are just men and women. We can lengthen our days, we can improve the quality of our life, but one day we will end. And in that moment, our quality of life now will not matter. The question will be, how do I keep from losing myself? And it will be at this moment that so many people are betrayed, be betrayed by the, by the cynicism of Cain and the cynicism of our world. Cynicism that says that God's not real. We, we live, we die, and then that's it. Of course I need to carve out a life for myself here, east of Eden. What else is there? If anyone's going to bless me, it's going to be me. That's cynicism. It's the water we swim in. But in that moment of death, you will be completely dependent for life. There will be nothing that you can do to give yourself life the only way you will live is through one who lives beyond death. The only way you will live is if 
He gives you life. So the question is, are you living today for that which will merit you the reward of life then, which will gain you the, the only thing you will want then? That's the question. What is implied here about the, about the irrelevance of Cain is made explicit elsewhere in the Bible. If you, if you live independent of God now, you lose yourself then. This is how Jude puts it in his little book at the, towards the end of the Bible. Speaking of false teachers, he says that they, quote, walk in the way of Cain. What does he mean? They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. It is possible to gain the world and lose your soul, to abandon yourself. What folly, what folly. Now it is, we could say, natural to do this. All the world now is shaped to, to, to bend and, and move us toward independence away from God. There are, there, are many, there are many bad things that happen to us in life that, that can cause us to become embittered towards God, cynical. And there are many temptations that constantly call out to us, go ahead, you can be like God without God. But that only results in a fruitless, futile, tragic cynicism. It's the lie of the garden that looks like noble doubt, cynicism does. It, it, it looks like you're courageous and noble. It looks like smart skepticism. God doesn't exist, or if He does, He's too stern. He's, he's not worth trusting for what really would fill me with joy in life. Cynicism feels humble and smart, but it's actually proud and foolish. Humans have no place to redefine God, and if they do, they miss out on the life God, as we will see, delights to give. Cynicism then moves us towards materialism. God may be the Lord of spiritual things, but I'm physical, and I'm going to create a life for myself over here in this stuff because I'm physical. He can, yeah, He can be over there, and I'm going to do my thing over here. I'm going to find life over here. This is my prosperity. I have to create life for myself in my realm, in my work, my possessions, my money, my time. My, my, my. And then materialism eventually becomes defiance. Proud, immoral. This is my prosperity and I'm going to do what I need to to keep it. I earned it. It protects me. It's my prowess, my wealth. It provides for me. Therefore, I'll do what I want. And then defiance leads only to irrelevance. The great lie is that all of this is going somewhere, but it's not. The essence of futility, to seek what you cannot keep and in the process of gaining what you cannot keep, to lose yourself. It is the utmost folly to pursue reward in things that were never meant to provide it in the first place. 
never designed for this, this which you so ultimately need. To trust in things that do not merit one the reward of life before the only one who can give it. That's foolishness. So then, you're saying my world, my job, my possessions, it's all irrelevant? No, no. God gives us Jabal and Jubal and Tubal-Cain and Steve Jobs, Jobs, however you pronounce it. He gives us cars and laptops and and skills and careers and possessions and our science and our prosperity so that He might be kind to the world. And that as, as, we, would, as we would taste His kindness, we, we would turn to the one who is being so very kind to us. We would see Him as a, as a generous God. We, we, we would taste His kindness and we would turn back to Him so that we would, we would know where to find true reward. That's what all of his blessings are for. To quote C.S. Lewis, the books or the music in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through was a longing For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. Listen to your longings. Listen to your imagination when, for instance, we we got to hear the, the symphony recently play downtown in a park, and uh, there was one moment where I think they were playing, if it's pronounced, Faure. And for just a moment, I, I felt like I was lifted up above the world, above everything, for, for just a moment. The, the, the sounds were achingly beautiful, a- achingly there was a longing that that sprung up inside of me. That longing in that moment is is speaking to you. His kingdom is real. His kingdom is real. But that's, that's that's just a taste of it. It's just the echo of a tune that you have yet to actually hear. ruled by a better king, one who is life itself. But there is a catch. Aha, you say. All right, here comes the get busy with your religion stuff part. Yeah, there, there is a catch. He only rewards life to those who walk with him. But not by self-effort, not by our works. It will take the rest of the Bible to flesh out what it means to walk with God. But Eve and Seth and Enosh and Enoch and Lamech and Noah all point to this truth. To walk with God is to hope in His working. 
in all of life. To walk with God is to hope in His working in all of life. This leads us to the second point. To live, we must walk with God, resisting the world by fighting to believe that God rewards faith alone. I'll say that again. To live, we must walk with God, resisting the world by fighting to believe that God rewards faith alone. Let's look again at Enoch. Again, it is not required of us that we should die. It's not just the natural way of things. We were meant to live, to live forever. Death is actually the interrupter of the normal. And Enoch gains life by walking with God. Which again, sounds at first like it was dependent on Enoch, on, on Enoch's performance of walking with God, of living a moral life, of doing the right religious things, that, that that's what merited him life. But in case there's any question, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 clarifies that for us and makes it really clear. Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6, and if you want some Sunday reading, I encourage you just to soak in these verses. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, how so? And without faith it is impossible to please him. For, what is, what is the object of faith? What, what does faith look like? For whoever would draw near to God, walk with God, be with God, must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Enoch walked with God by believing past, past all the cynicism. Cynicism, there's nothing new about it. It started in the garden. Past all the cynicism of the world that God is real and more than that, that, that God rewards those who seek Him. Enoch walked with God, not by working for God, but by believing that the very real God would work for him. That is faith. That is what merits anyone life. Right there. And it was this faith, this confidence in God, this hope in God that pleased God. God commended him even before he took him. God commended him, well done, good and faithful servant, because Enoch believed that God was good and that he would be faithful to the promise he made to Eve. God only rewards faith with life. And we know that he does because he answered Eve's hope. Eve, who though she plunged the world into sin and death with her, with her sin, who saw her firstborn become an arrogant murderer, Eve, who had every reason to be cynical. Eve, 
hoped that God would work through the birth of her son, Seth. And God did. God did raise up an offspring of Eve, Jesus. Jesus came as Enosh, as a man like us. And he came as Seth, the appointed one, the Messiah. And he walked with God perfectly in every way. And for the joy set before him, for the hope of his reward, you and me, he despised the shame and endured the cross. There he paid for all of our sins, including Eve's. God did not leave him there. God raised him from the dead. He has beaten death. There is one who has gone ahead, who is over death, who has beaten death, who possesses, who is life itself. And you remember Matthew's account that, that on the day of his resurrection, other people who had hoped in him came back to life and appeared to many who walked and talked to many the first news of a kingdom that we have yet to visit. So now he lives above death. He has become our Noah, the only one who can deliver us through the flood of God's wrath that is right around the corner. The wrath that will come upon the kingdom of Cain, upon a, a world that wants to be like God without faith in God. It took a long time, didn't it, for Eve's promise to come true. It took a long time. But God said yes to the hope of Eve. And in her hope, even Eve gained a righteousness in life. In her hope, you and I have a strong, certain hope. There is one who lives. But it is a long walk, this walking with God. It's a long walk. Life is short, and yet a lot of the time, it feels long. It's a long faith. And every day we wake up, we're surrounded by houses and cars and, and careers and children and, and mountains and wealth, and they're constantly chattering in, at us saying, I'm reward enough. I do, you do. Every day we're, we're bombarded with this. Every day we're bombarded with philosophies and, and threats and betrayals that call out to us, doubt God. You need to do this yourself. The kingdom of Cain is still all around us, and it is within us. Therefore, in order to, to drift towards um, worldliness, in order to drift to, back to the kingdom of, of Cain, all we have to do is nothing. The, the, the current of the world will take over just fine. The slide towards self-accomplishment, towards materialism, It's easy. Just do nothing. 
So then, we have need to fight. We have to understand our own vulnerability. But the fight is not, is not primarily against the world. It is a fight for faith. The Christian life is not one of arrival, but of resistance. But the core of resistance is fighting to believe that God is real and that He rewards all of those who seek Him. No matter your past, no matter what you've done, no matter how much like Cain you are, all those who seek Him. To believe that God is and will work for me. We have to fight for that. In my own fight, I, I have this swing. Um, and on, on one side of the swing is anxiety and pride. And then on the other side of the swing is, is rest and contentment and fruitfulness. Not all anxiety in life is bad, but, but when it is, it, it, it controls me. And I find that it, it controls me actually to, to work. You say, interestingly in our language, we say, like the devil. I, I want to work obsessively harder and harder to accomplish what I know that I need to accomplish. It controls me. I have a hard time resting in that. It's impossible, actually. Or if the thing that I'm anxious about goes well, then I'm proud. I'm content with myself. Maybe I say, praise God about it openly, but secretly my heart is really happy about my own self-accomplishment. And as I've thought about this for, for myself, I, I'm really trying to sit under my own preaching today. Um, the, the, the only way that out of that, that, that swirl of self is by, is by fighting, fighting to believe, fighting to believe that the promises of God, the very clear promises of God, just like Eve, and then take action. Then take action right where I'm at, right in my real life. The, the, the fight to believe means, for me, what... what taking up the promises of God, for all of us, taking up the promises of God, and one in particular for me has been Luke, uh, Luke 12, verses 22 through 34. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Again, another passage to, you would do well to soak on for a Sunday afternoon read. Jesus tells us there, don't worry. Don't worry. Instead, in the face of worry, pursue the kingdom. In the place of pursuing yourself, pursue the kingdom. Okay, but, okay, got it. But right at, at the center of that passage is a glorious promise. The whole passage turns on this one promise, verse 32. Jesus says, it's just, it's just, it, they're, they're too good to be true, yet they really are true words. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not just fear not, He'll give you the kingdom. No, no, no. 
Fear not, little flock. There's care in that. There's compassion in that. Fear not, little flock. It is my Father's good pleasure. It is His, His utter delight. And why? It doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus, on what Jesus has already done for you in your place. Because of Jesus, it is the Father's unreserved, unreserved, unfettered delight to give you the kingdom. So in the face of all the, all the chatter of the world coming at me, I, I, I need to fight to take hold of that promise. Maybe during some periods every day. Maybe during some periods every hour, every 15 minutes. I don't know. But I, but I take hold of that promise. I take hold of it. I don't have to spin and strive and waste my life trying to produce what was impossible for me to produce anyway. God will do it. God will work. It's His good pleasure to do it. There's, there's, there's no resentfulness in Him at all. There's no reticence whatsoever. He'll do it because of Jesus. Man. So I have to take up these promises again and again especially when I'm feeling anxious or flip anxiousness over self-congratulatory. But I take up the promise, and then uh, you and I, we, we must not wait for our feelings to agree with the promise. Faith takes the promise and moves. Faith does not wait for feelings to say, okay, yeah, sounds good. Because you know what? They may never. Some feelings need to die on the vine. We take the promise and we move. Often it's the faith that acts contrary to feelings that is most commendable to God because that's when we see the least. So we act. We act by turning back to our vocations, your job, your career, your, your spouse, your children, your stuff, your friends, your neighbors. You turn back to your vocations, and we turn back to them now following Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross we turn back to those vocations, fixing our eyes on our hope as if the promise was actually true. We turn back to our vocations, and, and, and when we do this, we, banking on the promises of God, we, we begin to see our various vocations in a new way. We begin to see them as the very context in which I hope in God to come and move and advance His kingdom. It becomes the very context in which I see God working in my working. That it's, it's not about the working of these hands, but it's about the working of His hands through these hands. To put it another way, 
my, the, the, the vocations that God has given me in my life become the very context in which I lay up treasure for myself in heaven. They become the very fields upon which I exercise faith. I trust God and I pursue the kingdom. So I begin to pray. I begin to pray in my vocations. I begin to, I begin to pray. I, I was a banker once. And I remember as God began to, to show me this a little bit, little by little, I, I, be, I began just to find myself praying about things and situations and began to hope for things. I, I began to actually see my job differently. Do, do you pray in your work? We're meant to. That's the field, the context in which God is meant to be glorified here and now. That's the field upon which we exercise hope, upon which we gain for ourselves treasures in heaven. So, as we see this, as, as, as we take hold of the promise and, we, and then we turn towards our vocations, we begin to pray and we begin to, to listen to others too. We, we, we begin to, to listen to others differently in the church. We begin to listen to see how are you pursuing the kingdom in your vocation? I want to know. I see something. I, I want that. I begin to listen. And then I see him on the move, displaying himself and building his kingdom in answer to my prayers. And, and little by little, my, my addiction to the world begins to be replaced by, by more longing. And I begin to be filled with more joy as I see God move in surprising ways. God means to delight us, so He surprises us. I promise you, He will surprise you with how He moves right where you're at in your vocations. That joy is fed by more and more foretaste of, of His kingdom of life. My joy, little by little, becomes not in seeing these hands accomplish something, but by seeing Him accomplish something. The very joy of my heart is changed. Do you want this? Do you want this joy? Do you want this life? And I implore you, trust Him. Fight for faith. Fight for it. And He will give it. He will reward you with joy and with life. Let's ask Him for it. God, we do pray. We pray now that You would, by Your Spirit, make, make clear what is still left um, unclear. Please, please cause new thoughts and uh, ideas of the imagination of what you might do if we simply believed your promises and banking hard into your promises turned into our vocations and pursued your glory. Give us, give us bigger imaginations to, to picture what you could do there 
And then I pray, would you, would you surprise us? Would you surprise us? Would you give us grace to, to see who we really are and to believe? To believe, perhaps for the first time this morning, that all of our sins are paid for on the cross. Perhaps we need grace to fight. Some of us are just floating down the stream. Wake us up. Give us movement. Cause us to fight for the very faith that we need upon which you would give us eternal life. We ask that you would do this because in doing so you would get even more glory. You are glorious, but we say glorify yourself by giving us life. Thank you. Thank you for being so incredibly good to us. Thank you that you have been so incredibly good to us on the cross. Thank you that you will be so incredibly good to us. That for all who trust in you right now, you stand over us smiling, poised, delighting to give us your kingdom. You are our great God. Be praised in us. Be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.